You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Holocaust by Charles Willard Diffin. I am more accustomed to the handling of steel ingots and the fabrication of ships than to building with words. But if I cannot write history as history is written, perhaps I can write it the way it is lived, and that must suffice. This account of certain events must have a title, I am told. I have used, as you see, Holocaust. Inadequate! But what word can tell even faintly of that reign of terror that engulfed the world, of those terrible thirty days in America, when dread and horror gripped the nation, and the red menace, like a wall of fire, swept downward from the north? And at last, the end! It was given to me to know something of that conflict, and of its ending, and of the man who, in that last day, took command of Earth's events, and gave battle to Mars, the god of war himself. It was against that background of war that he stood out. I must tell it in that way, and perhaps my own experience will be of interest. Yet it is of the man I would write more than the war, the most hated man in the whole world, that strange character, Paul Stravoinsky. You do not even recognize the name. But if I were to say instead the one word, Paul, ah, now I can see some of you start abruptly in sudden wide-eyed attention while the breath catches in your throats and the memory of a strange dread clutches your hearts. Stracky, we called him at college. He was never Paul, except to me alone. There was never the easy familiarity between him and the crowd at large whose members were Bill and Dick, and other nicknames unprintable. But Stracky he accepted. Bien, mon cher ami, he told me. He was as apt to drop into French as Russian, or any of a dozen other languages. A name? What is it? A label by which we distinguish one package of goods from a thousand of others just like it. I am unlike. For me, one name is as good as another. It is what is here that counts. He tapped his broad forehead that rose high to the tangle of black hair. And here! And this time he placed one hand above his heart. It is for what I give to the world of my head and my heart that I must be remembered. And if I give nothing, then the name, it is less than nothing. Dreamer, poet, scientist. There were many Paul Struckies in that one man. Brilliant in his work, he was majoring in chemistry. He was a mathematician who has never stopped. I've seen him pause, puzzled by some phase of a problem that, to me, was a blank wall. Only a moment's hesitation, and he would go way down to the bedrock of mathematics and come up with a brand new formula of his own devising. Then, voila, c'est fini! Let us go for a walk, friend Bob. There is some poetry that I have remembered. And we would head out of town while he spouted poetry by the yard and made me like it. I wish you could see the Paul Strachey of those days. I wish I could show him to you. You would understand so much better the Paul 
of these later times. Tall he seemed, though his eyes were only level with mine, for his real height was hidden beneath an habitual stoop. It let him conceal to some extent his lameness. He always walked with a noticeable limp, and here was the cause of the only bitterness that, in those days, was ever reflected in his face. Cossacks! he explained when he surprised a questioning look upon my face. They went through our village. I was two years old, and they rolled me down. But the hard coldness went from his eyes, and again they crinkled about with the kindly wise lines that seemed so strange in his young face. It is only a reminder to me, he added, that such things are all in the past, that we are entering a new world where savage brutality shall no longer rule, and the brotherhood of man will be the basis upon which men shall build. And his face, so homely that it was distinctive, had a beauty all of its own when he dared to voice his dreams. It was this that brought about his expulsion from college. That was in 1935, when the Vornikov faction brought off their coup d'etat and secured a stranglehold on Russia. We all remember the campaign of propaganda that was forced into the very fibre of every country, to weaken with its insidious dry rot the safe foundations of our very civilization. Paul was blinded by his idealism, and he dared to speak. He was conducting a brilliant research into the structure of the atom. It ended abruptly with his dismissal. And the accepted theories of science went unchallenged while men worked along other lines than Paul's to attempt the release of the tremendous energy that is latent in all matter. I saw him perhaps three times in the four years that followed. He had a laboratory out in a godforsaken spot where he carried on his research. He did enough analytical work to keep him from actual starvation, though it seemed to me that he was uncomfortably close to that point. Come with me, I urged him. I need you. You can have the run of our laboratories. Work out the new alloys that are so much needed. You would be tremendously valuable. He had mentioned Maida to me, so I added, and you and Maida can be married, and can live like a king and queen on what my outfit can pay you. He smiled at me as he might have done towards a child. Like a king and queen, he said. Bad friend, Bob. Maida and I do not approve of kings and queens, nor do we wish to follow them in their follies. It is hard waiting. I saw his eyes cloud for a moment. But Maida is willing. She is working, too. She is up in Melford, as you know, and she has faith in my work. She sees with me that it will mean the release of our fellow men and women from the poverty that grinds out their souls. I am near to success, and when I give to the world the secret of power, then— But I had to read in his far-seeing eyes the visions he could not compass in words. That was the first time. I was flying a new ship when I next dropped in on him. A sweet little job, I thought it then, not like the old buses that Paul and I had trained in at college, where the top speed was a hundred and twenty. This was an A.B. Clinton cruiser, and the ABCs in 1933 were good little wagons, the best there were. I asked Paul to take a hop with me and fly the ship. He could fly beautifully. His lameness had been no hindrance to him. In his slender artist hands, 
a ship became a living thing. Are you doing any flying? I asked, but the threadbare suit made his answer unnecessary. I'll do my flying later, he said, and when I do, he waved contemptuously towards my shining new ship, you'll scrap that piece of junk. The tone matched the new lines in his face, deep lines and bitter. This practical world has always been hard on the dreamers. Poverty, and the grinding struggle that Maida was having, the expulsion from college when he was assured of a research scholarship that would have meant independence and the finest of equipment to work with, all this, I found, was having its effect. And he talked in a way I didn't like of the new Russia, and of the time that was near at hand, when her communistic government should sweep the world of its curse of capitalistic control. Their propaganda campaign was still going on, and I gathered that Paul had allied himself with them. I tried to tell him what we all knew, that the old Russia was gone, that Vornikov and his crowd were rapacious and bloodthirsty, and that their real motives were as far removed from his idealism as one pole from the other. But it was of no use. And I left when I saw the light in his eyes. It seemed to me that Paul Stravoinsky had driven his splendid brain a bit beyond its breaking point. Another year, and Paris in 1939, with the dreaded 1st of May drawing near. There had been rumours of demonstrations in every land, but the French were prepared to cope with them, or so they believed. Who could have coped with the menace of the North that was gathering itself for a spring? I saw Paul there. It lacked two days of the 1st of May, and he was seated with a group of industrious talkers at a secluded table in a cafe. He crossed over when he saw me, and drew me aside, and I noticed that a quiet man at a table nearby never let us out of his sight. Paul and his companions were, I judged, under observation. "'What are you doing here now?' he asked. His manner was casual enough to anyone watching, but the tense voice and the look in his eyes that bored into me were anything but casual. My resentment was only natural. And why shouldn't I be here attending to my own affairs? Do you realize that you're being rather absurd? He didn't bother to answer me directly. I can't control them, he said. If they would only wait a few weeks, another month. God, how I prayed to them at... He broke off short. His eyes never moved, yet I sensed a furtiveness as marked as if he had peered suspiciously about. Suddenly he laughed aloud, as if at some joking remark of mine. I knew it was for the benefit of those he had left, and not for the quiet man from the Surete. Now his tone was quietly conversational. Smile, he said. Smile, Bob. We're just having a friendly talk. I won't live another two hours if they think anything else. But, Bob, my friend, for God's sake, Bob, leave Paris tonight. I am taking the midnight plane on the transatlantic line. Come with me. One of the group at the table had risen. He was sauntering in our direction. I played up to Paul's lead. Glad I ran across you, I told him, and shook his extended hand that gripped mine in an agony of pleading. I'll be seeing you in New York one of these days. I'm going back soon. But I didn't go soon enough. The unspoken pleading in Paul Stravoinsky's eyes lost its hold on me by another day. I had work to do. 
Why should I neglect it to go scuttling home because someone who feared these swarming rats had begged me to run for cover? And the French people were prepared. A little rioting, perhaps, a pistol shot or two, and a machine gun that would spring from nowhere and sweep the street. Yet now we know of the document that the Russian ambassador delivered to the President of France, though no one knew of it then. He handed it to the portly bearded President at ten o'clock on the morning of April 30th, and the building that had housed the Russian representatives was empty ten minutes later. Their disguises must have been ready, for if the sewers of Paris had swallowed them, they could have vanished no more suddenly. And the document? It was the same in substance as those delivered in like manner in every capital of Europe. Twenty-four hours were given in which to assure the Central Council of Russia that the French government would be dissolved, that communism would be established, and that its executive heads would be appointed by the Central Council. And then the bulletins appeared, and the exodus began. Papers floated in the air, they blew in hundreds of whirling eddies through the streets, and they warned all true followers of the glorious Russian faith to leave Paris that day. For tomorrow would herald the dawn of a new heaven on earth, a communistic heaven, and its birth would come with the destruction of Paris. I give you the general meaning, though not the exact words, and, like the rest, I smiled tolerantly as I saw the stream of men and women and frightened children that filtered from the city all that day and night, but I must admit that our smiles were strained as morning came on the first of May, and the hour of ten drew near. Paris the beautiful, that lovely blossom, flowering on the sturdy stalk that was la belle France, Paris laughing to cover its unspoken fears that morning in May, while the streets thudded to the feet of marching men in horizon blue, and the air above was vibrant with the endless roar of planes. This meant war, and mobilization orders were out, yet still the deadly menace was blurred by a feeling of unreality. A hoax, a huge joke. It was absurd, the thought of a distant people imposing their will upon France. And yet... And yet... There were countless eyes turned skyward, as a thousand bells rang out the hour of ten, and countless ears heard faintly the sound of gunfire from the north. My work had brought me into contact with high officials of the French government. I was privileged to stand with a group of them, where a high-roofed building gave me a vantage point for observation. With them I saw the menacing specks on the horizon. I saw them come on with deadly deliberation, come on and on, in an ever-growing armada that filled the sky. Wireless had brought the report of their flight high over Germany. It was bringing now the story of disaster from the northern front. A heavy air force had been concentrated there, and now the steady stream of radio messages came on flimsy sheets to the group about me, while they clustered to read the incredible words. They cursed and glared at one another, those French officials, as if daring their fellows to believe the truth. Then, silent and white of face, they reached numbly for each following sheet that messengers brought, until they knew at last that the Air Force of France was no more. The roar of the approaching host was deafening in our ears, red, red as blood, 
and each unit grew to enormous proportions. Armoured cruisers of the air, dreadnoughts, they came as a complete surprise. But the city is ringed with anti-aircraft batteries, a uniformed man was whispering. They will bring the brutes down. The northern edge of the city flamed to a roaring wall of fire. The batteries went into action in a single crashing harmony that sang triumphantly in our ears. A few of the red shapes fell, but for each of these a hundred others swept down in deadly directed flight. The glass was in my hand. My eyes strained through it to see the silvery cylinders that fell from the speeding ships. I saw the red cruisers sweep upwards before the inferno of exploding bombs raged towards them from below, and where the roar of batteries had been was only silence. The fleet was over the city. We waited for the rain of bombs that must come. We saw the red cloud move swiftly to continue the annihilation of batteries that still could fire. We saw the armada pass on and lose itself among cloud banks in the west. Only a dozen planes remained, high hung in the upper air. We stared in wonderment at one another. Was this mercy? From such an enemy? It was inconceivable. Mercy! I wonder that we dared to think the word. Only an instant till a whistling shriek marked the coming of death. It was a single plane, a giant shell, that rode on wings of steel. It came from the north, and I saw it pass close overhead. Its propeller screamed an insolent, inhuman challenge. Inhuman, for one glance told the story. Here was no man-flown plane, no cockpit or cabin, no gun mounts, only a flying shell that swerved and swung as we watched. We knew that its course was directed from above. It was swung with terrible certainty by a wireless control that reached it from a ship overhead. Slowly it sought its target. Deliberately it poised above it. An instant only it hung, though the moment, it seemed, would never end. Then down, and the blunt nose crashed into the government buildings, where at that moment the Chamber of Deputies was in session, and where those buildings had been was spouting masonry and fire. A man had me by the arm, his fingers gripped into my flesh. With his other hand he was pointing towards the north. "'Torpedoes!' he was saying. "'Torpedoes of a size gigantic! Ah, oh, mon Dieu! Mon Dieu! Save us, for we are lost!' They came in an endless stream, those blood-red projectiles. They announced their coming with short cries of varying pitch, and they swung and swerved as the ships above us picked them up, to rake the city with mathematical precision. Incendiary, of course, flames followed every shattering burst. Between us and the Seine was a hell of fire, a hell that contained unnumbered thousands of what an instant before had been living folk, men and women clinging in a last terrified embrace, children whose white faces were hidden in their mother's skirts or buried in bosoms no longer a refuge for childish fears. I saw it as plainly as if I had been given the far-reaching vision of a god, and I turned and ran with stumbling feet where a stairway awaited. Of that flight only a blurred recollection has stayed with me. I pray God that I may never see it more clearly. There are sights that mortal eyes cannot behold with understanding and leave mortal brain intact. It is like an anaesthetic at such times, 
the numbness that blocks off the horrors the eyes are recording, like the hurt of the surgeon's scalpel that never reaches to the brain. Dimly I see the fragmentary scenes, the crashing fall of buildings that come crumbling and thundering down, myself crawling like an insect across the wreckage. It is slippery and wet where the stones are red, and I stumble, then see the torn and mangled thing that has caused me to fall. A face regards me from another mound. I see the dust of powdered masonry still settling upon it. The dark hair is hardly disturbed about the face, so peaceful, so girlishly serene. I am still wondering dully why there is only the head of that girl resting on the shattered stone, as I lie there exhausted and watch the next torpedo crash a block behind me. The air is shrill with flying fragments. I wonder why my hands are stained and sticky as I run and crawl on my way. The red rocks are less slippery now, and the rats, from the sewers of Paris, they've come out to feed. Fragments of pictures, and when the worst of them gone. I know that night came, red night, under a cloud of smoke, and I found myself on the following day descending from a fugitive peasant's cart and plodding onward towards the markings of a commercial aerodrome. They could not be everywhere, those red vultures of the sky, and they had other devil's work to do. I had money, and I paid well for the plane that carried me through the day and night to the municipal airport of New York. End of section one of Holocaust.